I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as we make our way through uh, this uh, letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote uh, to the Corinthians, we come to chapter 9, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 19. Uh, down to the end of the chapter. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and enable us to embrace all that is promised to us in the gospel. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, several weeks ago, I quoted to you from Martin Luther's treatise uh, on the freedom of a Christian, in which he says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to to all. And, the, uh, and Martin Luther, as he wrote this treatise, he acknowledges that this seems on the surface contradictory, and yet he says if we can prove it to be true, it would be very helpful to us. And indeed, while in this treatise Luther is, is, is meditating upon the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole, it's our passage today that he quotes to prove that this statement, that a Christian is both free as well as a servant, it's this verse, he proves, is in fact what the Apostle Paul says as he quotes verse 19 of our passage, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. And so the one thing that Luther, the, the one takeaway that we get from that treatise, the freedom of a Christian, is that freedom for us as Christians, it does not mean autonomy. It does not mean that we can do whatever we please whenever we want, but rather we find freedom in, in order to serve. And in serving others, we have a new identity in Christ that is the most freeing thing of all. 
I think that's what we get from our passage today is the Apostle Paul continues uh, discussing that sometimes as Christians, we are called to surrender our rights for the good of others. And although, as we saw last week, although the Apostle Paul had uh, a right as an apostle to receive financial compensation, he did not exercise this right, but rather worked with his own hands, supporting himself so that he might be able to present the gospel free of charge. He did not want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel or be a burden to others and to the churches he ministered to. And by highlighting this fact, the Apostle Paul is setting an example for the Corinthians who were insisting upon their own supposed rights that they could eat meat offered to idols, despite the fact that it was causing their weaker brothers to stumble. Well, now in our passage, the Apostle Paul will expand upon how he does not focus upon his own needs. He does not think about himself or put himself first, but rather he focuses upon the particular needs and sensitivities to those whom he is trying to reach with the gospel. And here he has two main groups in mind, Jews as well as Gentiles. And so although he says that he is Free, as he asserts in verse 19, he makes himself a servant. Now, Paul, Paul doesn't explain exactly here what he means by being free. Now, clearly, he states that he is free, but what does he mean? Well, I think it's pretty clear from Paul's other writings that when he talks about the freedom which Christ has purchased for us, he's talking about the freedom from guilt and condemnation, the freedom from the curse of the law, sin and the dominion of Satan, as well as the opinions and commandments of men. I think it's that last thing that Paul has in the forefront of his mind. As he said earlier in the letter, it's a very small thing for you to be judging me. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. He's talking about the freedom he has from the opinions of others. He really could care less about what others think about him. And ultimately, he is solely concerned with what God thinks about him. And so Paul says that although he's free from all of these things, Christ has indeed set him free. He makes himself a servant of all. Now, this word servant can also be translated slave. And this is the word that the Apostle Paul often used to uh, refer to himself in some of the openings of his letters. Think of the opening of Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same word he's he's used previously in chapter 7. When he talked, uh, when he was speaking paradoxically uh, paradoxically about how those who are free in Christ, uh, the the freedmen in Christ, is ultimately a servant of of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this, the one who is called as a slave in Christ is ultimately free. Well, here Paul tells us that it reminds us that he has made himself a servant not only to the Lord Jesus Christ, but in serving his faithful, serving his Lord faithfully, he finds himself a servant of all, as Jesus says that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. Now, why does the Apostle Paul make himself a servant of all? Well, here's the point, so that he might win more of them. 
When Paul was called on the road to Damascus, he was told that his mission would be to carry the name of the Lord Jesus Christ before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. And he took that job seriously. He wanted to win as many as he could for the sake of Christ, and he would not put an obstacle or add offense to the cross of Christ. And so here he talks about how he relates to the various Uh, groups of people that he would encounter whom he was trying to reach for the gospel. He says in verse 20, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Now, I think it's important for us to pause and ask the question, well, wait a minute. Wasn't the apostle Paul a Jew? How is it that Paul can say to the Jews, I became a Jew, when in fact, He was a Jew, and clearly he was. As he says in Romans chapter 9, he was a Jew according to the flesh. In Philippians chapter 3, in talking about his previous life before he was called as a servant of Christ, he spoke about how he was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And so how is it that Paul can say that he becomes a Jew when he's trying to minister to his fellow Jews? I think the, re- the, way in w- the, the reason why he could say this is because Paul is not speaking primarily as a Jew according to the flesh, but rather Paul is writing according to his new identity in Christ. Paul took very seriously what he said in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. And that's how Paul saw himself as uh, his new identity as a new creature was so strong that it eclipsed his ethnicity. It eclipsed his identity as a Jew so that he could say as a new creature, when I'm ministering to Jews, I become as one of them. And he goes on to explain what that looks like when he describes them as those who live under the law. Here, of course, he's referring to the Mosaic law uh, and to all of the, the stipulations which it had for the Jewish people. We know that it was Paul's custom whenever he went into a new city, if there was a synagogue in that city on the Sabbath day, he would first go to the synagogue and proclaim Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. This despite the fact that Paul was prim- his primary calling was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Nonetheless, whenever he would first go into a city, if it had a synagogue, he would go and proclaim Christ there from the Old Testament scriptures. And when he would do that, he would keep and observe the Jewish customs. This would include keeping the the Sabbath day, the seventh day, uh, eating a kosher diet, uh, uh, being circumcised, all of those things so as to not add to the offense of the cross. We see specific examples of this in the book of Acts. For example, in uh, Acts chapter 16, when he took Timothy alongside of him, Uh, to be his traveling companion. Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. And so Timothy was not circumcised. And yet we see in, in Acts chapter 16 that Paul had Timothy circumcised because of the Jews. So that they would, so that he would be able to minister freely amongst the Jewish people. 
We saw we see in Acts chapter 21 that Paul sponsors four men who had taken uh, probably a Nazarite vow and he paid a relatively expensive fee for them so that they could offer sacrifices in the temple. Paul himself took a vow in Acts chapter 18 when he had left Corinth. Uh, And all of these things uh, showed that Paul respected the Old Testament law and kept Jewish customs in order to win over the Jews. Now, although Paul observed these Mosaic commandments as if he were under the law, it's interesting that when Paul's speaking here, he wants to make clear that he is, in fact, not under the law. He kept these things in order to minister to his fellow ethnic Jews, and yet he really wasn't under the law. He really didn't have to. Now, Paul had, so that's why he says, not being myself under the law. I don't feel like I have to do this for myself, he's saying. I'm doing it for others. So as an ethnic Jew, Paul had no problem with observing the Mosaic law in order to win more for Christ. Now, when this was applied to Gentiles, that's a different story altogether. Whenever people were insisting that Gentiles need to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses, Paul and the rest of the early church was emphatic, no, they do not have to keep these things. And so you could read Acts chapter 15 or the entire letter to the Galatians to see how how strongly Paul felt about uh, imposing Mosaic laws uh, upon the Gentiles. And so that's where he turns in verse 21 when ministering to those outside the law. Here he's referring to Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses. Now, what's remarkable to me is not that the Apostle Paul had uh, uh, kept Mosaic laws. He had done that his entire life. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What's most remarkable to me is what we read in verse 21 when he says that when he's ministering to Gentiles... He lives and acts like a Gentile when he is among them. And so Paul could take his own advice that he gives in chapter 10, verse 27, when he says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. I think the Apostle Paul did that exact When he was ministering to Gentiles and they invited him over to dinner, he didn't ask what was on the menu. He didn't say, oh, is this kosher or, oh, has this been offered to idols? He ate what was whatever was set before him in order to not give offense to his host. Just to get an idea of how uh, what a major breakthrough this was in the new covenant, we can just turn to Peter's example that we read about in Acts chapter 10. We know the story where Peter's sitting on the roof, uh, the rooftop in, in, in Joppa along the coast to, on the Mediterranean Sea. And he's hungry and his stomach's growling. And he sees a vision uh, where a sheet is lowered down and there's all kinds of animals on this sheet. All kinds of unclean animals. And he hears the voice of his Lord saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way. I would never eat that food. That's not kosher food. It is unclean. It is common. And and the Lord Jesus Christ says what God has called clean, you shall not call common. 
So Jesus was teaching Peter an important point there, not only with regard to his diet. And by the way, that vision had to be repeated two more times, three times total to get the point across to Peter. But we see Peter starting to get the point when he realizes that this has much more to do with food. It has to do with the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. As he is sent to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and he's about to step across the threshold into his house, he needs to stop and make a point. He says in Acts 10, 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. If Peter had a hard time accepting the fact that it's okay to eat with Gentiles, that it's okay to eat non-kosher food, how much more the Apostle Paul, who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, And yet when he came to that freedom he had in Christ, when he realized the freedom which Christ had purchased for him, he embraced that freedom in order to reach those outside the law. Now, when Paul's talking about how he becomes as one who is is outside of the law of God, I think he wants to make clear that he's not completely without the law. He's not under the law, but he's not completely devoid of the law of God. He's not, and so, in other words, Paul was not an antinomian. He's not one who lived with complete disregard to the law of God. He's not, one of, he's not like those who were in Corinth were saying, who were saying, all things are lawful. I could do whatever I want. No, the Apostle Paul makes clear that he is not without God's law. Paul certainly did not engage in the sinful behavior that characterized the Gentiles around him, such as idolatry or fornication. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, you shall not live like the Gentiles do. And clearly he did not engage in sinful actions. Here Paul's restricting his his behavior to eating uh, food, non-kosher food, and, and dining together with having table fellowship with Gentiles. Now, the reason why he didn't engage in these sinful actions is because he was under the law of Christ. Notice there what he says in verse 21. He's not outside the law of God, but he's under the law of Christ. Here we see a distinction between being under the law of Moses and being under the law of Christ. This is what Paul said in our uh, passage that I read to you today for our absolution of, of sin. In Romans chapter 8, this is the law of the spirit of life that has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Oh, this is the law that is fulfilled by love, loving God as well as our neighbor, as Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Or in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this is God's moral law that's not just written on tablets of stone, but now has been written on our heart. And by the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to begin in this life to keep this law. Not just some of it, but begin in this life to keep all of God's commands. This is what James calls the law of liberty, because in keeping it, there is life. And so Paul, who finds himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, says that he is under his law, the law of love, which has been written on his heart as he's been given the spirit. 
And so having talked about how he relates to Jews as well as to Gentiles, in verse 22, Paul adds a third category of people whom he entitles the weak. Of course, here, Paul's referring to what he had said in the previous chapter when he talked about those who were weak, uh, uh, whom the other Corinthians were uh, abusing and causing to stumble by eating meat that had been offered to idols. There, he referred to those who were weak in conscience. In other words, those who were easily swayed and led astray back into the sin of idolatry. In Romans chapter 14, he talks about those who are weak in faith. That is, those who are overscrupulous and easily offended. They think that it is innately sinful to do particular things. Paul tells us that we need to be sensitive to both and not sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ for whom he died. So in Romans 15, 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is exactly what Paul means when he says, To the weak I became weak. And so he was sensitive to either their weakness in conscience or their weakness in faith. He didn't want to impose uh, uh, th- uh, his behavior upon them because of their weak, uh, uh, their weak conscience. And so he says that he becomes all things to all people. Now, this could be easily twisted and misunderstood. Paul is uh, far from him being unprincipled or vacillating from one group to another to suit his purposes or to please men. Paul's not being a weather vane here who just turns with, the, uh, with whatever way the wind is blowing. Paul here is displaying a servant's heart. He is willingly surrendering his rights and his, uh, what, what he would prefer for the interests of others in order to win others to Christ. He's not seeking to please himself, but he's seeking to please his Lord by being sensitive to the needs of those around him. Now, why does he do this? He says in verse, he explains his purposes in verse 23. He says he does it all for the sake of the gospel. He does it all for the sake of the gospel. Why? So that he may share with them in its blessings. I, I like the way that the King James translates it here. It's more, tr- it's more literal. So that he might be a joint partaker thereof. The word blessings in the ESV is supplied. It's not there in the Greek. In other words, what Paul's saying is that he comes, a lot, he comes alongside these people, whether it's the Jew or the Gentile or the weak. What he does is he comes alongside of them and he becomes as they are in order to join them on this journey to faith. And as Paul joins them on this journey, leading them to Christ, he himself experiences the power of the gospel firsthand. That's why he says, I do this for the sake of the gospel so that I may share with them. I become a joint partaker of them. Why? Because he's joined joined them on their journey. Whether it be the Jew coming to Christ, embracing him as the the long-awaited Messiah, or the Gentile who, who was far away Now, having been brought near, Paul joins them on this journey and experiences the power of the gospel together with them. In another letter to the the Galatians, he talks about how uh, bringing others to Christ is like childbirth. It's painful, 
but there's joy at the end. And so this experience that Paul has, he does it all for that so that he could be joint partakers of that power of the gospel. Well, then in verse 24, he shifts gears. He shifts gears to give a sports analogy that would have been very familiar to his Corinthian readers. And the reason being is because Corinth uh, hosted a very important game uh, known as the Isthmian Games. This was held every two years and was second only in prestige to the Great Olympics. And so every two years, athletes from all around the world, or at least around Greece, would come to compete in various events that included running, that included wrestling, as well as boxing. And so the Apostle Paul, in talking about this race that the runners get into, the Corinthians undoubtedly knew very well, uh, from firsthand experience, what he is describing. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? It's, it's a very exhilarating to, to watch a race, and especially at the starting line. And you see all of these runners lined up, and they shoot the gun, and they all take off sprinting. Why are they running so fast? Because they want to win. And they give it their all. And so the Apostle Paul says, in the same way that runners run to win, so we need to run our Christian life. It's important not to press this analogy too far. Paul, the, the Apostle Paul isn't saying that there's only one winner in the Christian life. Of course, we're all winners in Christ. What he's saying here is that we need to take our Christi Christianity seriously. And in the same way that runners give it their all, so we too ought to give, uh, give it our all in following after Christ. In the same way that athletes exercise self-control, they put their body through all sorts of physical pain and put all sorts of restrictions on themselves. Before too long, you know, a year from now, we'll be watching the Olympics that are, are going to be hosted in Japan. But even now, you know that the athletes who are looking forward to competing in the Olympics, even now, they are training their bodies. They're not going out and having... Uh, you know, ice cream sundaes every single, every single night. No, they are restricting their diet. They're putting their bodies through all sorts of physical training in order for them to be prepared so that they might win the race or win whatever they're competing in. So likewise, as Christians, we need to exercise self-control in particular with regard to our quote-unquote rights as Christians and how they may offend others. Don't forget the context here. Paul's referring to how they need to not eat meat offered to idols if it causes their brother to stumble. Now, why do these athletes, why do these athletes put themselves through all of this trials, all of these trials and tribulations? Well, it's in order for them to get the prize. In our day and age, in the modern Olympics, they get a really nice shiny medal and hopefully some sort of advertising contract and make millions of dollars. But in the ancient world, boys and girls, do you know why? Do you know what the athletes got at the Isthmian Games, the, the winner of the race? you know what he would get? He would get a wreath. Now, a wreath is basically just a stick from a tree. And in this case, it was a pine tree that had been dried out and, and folded so that it went around your head. That's all they got is, a, is one piece of a pine tree 
uh, that they put on their head. That's why Paul says they do all of this for a perishable wreath. The thing was already dried out when they gave it to him. Probably, you know, had fallen apart by the time they got back to whatever city they were from. But Paul says we do these things for an imperishable crown, an imperishable wreath that he, uh, that of course he speaks of, uh, that Peter speaks about this imperishable crown of glory. This is the imperishable uh, glorified body that we will have at the last day as Paul goes on to describe in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so we have an eternal weight of glory that we are striving for, uh, exercising self-control so that we can uh, uh, pursue this path with endurance. And so Paul goes on to describe himself in, uh, in verse 26 when he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box the air. You see Paul going on to use these other illustrations of, uh, in the sporting world. He will not lose sight of the finish line. He will not miss his target. He has his eyes focused on the prize. As he says in Philippians chapter 3, One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's focus here. As he serves his Lord, he presses on for that prize. goes on to describe how he disciplines his body. The Greek word here is very vivid. Literally, he says, I give myself a black eye. He's, he's uh, training his body. He's making it his own slave, not to please himself, but he's making himself, his own body a slave for righteousness. Now, in the history of the church, these words have been misapplied and misunderstood as if, that, as if Paul is promoting some sort of rigorous asceticism. Uh, throughout the history of the church, there was uh, the monastic movement where the monks uh, wanted to discipline their own physical bodies. And if they thought an unchaste thought, if they had a, a fleeting thought of lust go through their mind, they would literally whip themselves or deprive themselves of food or seclude themselves from the rest of society in order for them to pursue entirely holy or spiritual tasks. If that were, if, if that were the meaning, or if people took that from what Paul is saying here, they would miss the point entirely. You see, thinking, uh, doing that sort of uh, rigorous asceticism misses the point. Why? Because the Christian life is not about you. The Christian life is about others. That's what Luther ultimately came to in his conclusion uh, when himself, as himself as a monk. As he was pursuing holiness, as he tried to uh, make himself holy so that he could stand before God on his own merits, he realized that the monastic life is the most selfish thing ever. You're just thinking about yourself. Ultimately, Luther came to the conclusion that we are justified by faith alone. And therefore, God doesn't need our works. Neither do we. Because we're justified by the works of Christ. And so who needs our works? Our neighbor. Our neighbors need our works. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I don't think about myself. I think about others. 
And so to quote from Luther again, he says, A man does not live for himself alone in this mortal body to work for it alone, but he lives only for others and not for himself. To this end, he brings his body into subjection that he may be the more sincerely and freely serving others. And so ultimately, that's what the Christian life is all about. Christ has set us free from the law of sin and of death. He has set us free from the opinions and commandments of men. He has made us so that we are perfectly righteous in the sight of God. And he has given us his spirit and written his law on our hearts so that we wouldn't even have to think about ourselves, but rather thinking about others. And so looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, let us all run the race that is set before us with endurance. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you once again that you did not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. And in so doing, O Lord, you have set an example for us to follow in your footsteps. You've told us that if anyone wants to follow after you, that we would have to take up our cross daily, denying ourselves and follow after you. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude. We pray that you would help us to be sensitive to the needs and sensitivities to those around us in order that we may win more for you. And may we find ourselves in our new identity, not in serving and pleasing ourselves, but rather in serving others. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.